0: Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm Eric Trexler, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Lyon. Welcome, Rachel.
1: Hey, I butchered Eric. that one, didn't I? I, I said, I let's know. try it different
0: today. I, I that.
1: You know, you got to start somewhere. I love it. I love it. But um, hey, are you going to introduce today's guest? Because we have an awesome conversation ahead.
0: I am. We have today, we have Enrique Odi, the chief technology officer from Second Front Systems, a company focused on providing accelerated access to emerging dual-use technology being developed by VC-backed companies out there. Um, Enrique comes from you know, the military 23-year career with the United States Air Force, co-founder of the DIU, DIUX, some of us may know it as, yes. as, the Defense Innovation Unit out in Silicon Valley, and he also founded the Kessel Run Software Development Program wow. for the United, United States Air Force. Enrique, welcome to the show. Thank you yes. for joining us. It's going to be yes. a good one.
2: Yeah, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, pretty happy to be here.
0: Rachel, why don't you kick us off since I started with the intro and kind of flubbed through that one?
1: Sure, sure. Well, you know, I did want to start with because I, you know, I was reading um, a little bit about uh, you know where you're at today at Second Front Systems, and I and I loved how your company. Um, you know uh, describe their focus right bringing together the leaders daring to reimagine how the defense community gets cutting-edge innovation invention into the hands of troops on the front lines that's that's awesome that's serious business and very that's audacious exciting from
0: a goal
2: perspective yes <laughs> yeah so uh honestly it's a it's a pretty audacious company which is one of the reasons i joined it when i left the air force and the uh, two co-founders of both uh former marines uh, mark butler and uh, peter dixon and, you know, based off of their experience in the Marine Corps and not having the most advanced technologies available, I think that's, you know, that's how they started this company saying, let's figure out how to get the right tech in the hands of the warfighter. And so with that as their mission, you know, I, of course I signed up and like, you know, I'll find any way I can uh, to do this. I was trying to do it from the other side of the military and I tried to do it on the commercial side.
0: How does it work working with a Marine? My boss is a Marine and sometimes it gets a little dicey. He says, so, take the hill. And I say, we're talking cybersecurity here.
2: No, no, I, I just have to use smaller words. But uh, beyond that, I think working with a Marine is easy.
0: Schoenberg, that's for you. I, I did not
2: say
1: it. This,
2: this is our, our company every day because we have uh, Army, Marines, Navy, Air Force. We don't have any Coast Guard yet, but we have all the services. It, it is mostly just ribbing each other. Uh, during every single call,
0: you know, in our global governments business, which is what I represent, that's exactly what we do. Every single call, we're just we're on each other, and it's fun, and and we all love each other and know it. But it, it's it's great. The barbs you hear coming out are HR friendly, but great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of innovation, though, and this audacious right, you know, focus of your company, it's it all comes back to the roots. I think from your from your career in the Air Force and Kessel Run was was huge. I mean, would you mind explaining a little bit about that for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it? Uh,
2: yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, Kessel Run was actually a program that I kicked off with a few the airmen uh, back in 2016. Um, actually, some of the, the ideas for it were coming out of uh, probably a year earlier than that. Where we're trying to figure out how do we bring all these really interesting commercial technologies into the government? And what we found out is we couldn't. You know, the government didn't have the right software. We couldn't integrate. We didn't have the right clouds. And there's like so many problems. And so Castle Run did not start, start out as, hey, let's build some massive weapon system. It started out as, why don't we learn how to code ourselves the way the commercial sector does so we understand how to integrate stuff down the road? And it really just started as an experiment of how could the Air Force code the same way Silicon Valley codes? And uh, within a few weeks of starting off, we were given a task to actually solve a real-world problem. This is the, the tanker planning tool, which is exciting. It was fun. None of us knew anything about tankers or tanker planning, uh, but when we were given a real-world real challenge, we just dove in, and within a few months, we were able to solve it. And I think that's kind of the real, the eye-opener, not just for the airports, but for us our, ourselves, the people that are building this going, wow, we actually can solve real problems and solve them really quickly. And so that kind of, it went from being an, an experiment and a prototype into actually saying, maybe this is the way we should be doing business.
0: And Enrique, you're saying tanker planning tool. So refueling tanker. tankers. Refuel, yes. Yeah. Refueling tankers. Yeah. So
2: how do you plan uh, when fighter jets are going in and out of a, of a strike zone? How do they right. get, hook up with the tanker aircraft, get refueled going in and coming out? And how do you make that more efficient and more effective?
0: So, so the planning on airspace management, link up management and, and, and the like.
2: Uh, yeah, correct. So okay. uh, that process was being done on a big whiteboard primarily. And then uh, they take the, the plan that's written on a whiteboard, run some calculations in, in Microsoft Excel, see if it worked. And then if they worked, they'd type it into the official program of record, of saying, here's the plan. And that was a really laborious process. Took, you know, eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And was the, wow. the, the real problem with that plan is if you had to change something at the last moment, uh, it's really hard to make uh, edits on a whiteboard and do the math for it. So it would have to, in many cases, just start over. And so that's really where, where we came in saying, could we automate some of these processes, do all the calculations on the back end, build software so that not only could they make the plan, but more importantly, they could change the plan and let the software figure out those second and third order effects.
0: And they, and they could do, they could war game it and say, well, what if we Correct. change this variable? I, I remember yeah. playing Harpoon. Rachel, you'll lose, I'll lose you on this one, but that's okay. I remember playing Harpoon back in like the 90s And having to marry up tankers with like F 14 Tomcats and aircraft to make sure they they could make it home. That was computerized in like 386, 286 days. Holy cow. That
2: is an old school game, but yes, I also played Harpoon. Uh, Yeah, good times.
0: So in 2016, Kessel Run (laughs) actually brings similar type capability, Uh. obviously a little more complex, into the battle space. (laughs) Correct. I can see the need for it. Awesome. Yes.
1: That's fantastic. We've been talking
0: about that today.
1: So, in and also, so I think there was a, a note here about some of the lessons you learned about cybersecurity at Kessel Run as right. well, related to, to pen testing. We'd love to hear more about that.
2: Oh yeah, I'd love to. So, uh, when we started off, obviously, we're trying to figure out how to build software, and we just start to look at, why does it take the military, you know, five, 10 years to get new software into the government? And there's a whole issue with that. There's a requirements process, contracting process. Uh, there is test evaluation. But we saw that the biggest hindrance was actually the security piece, getting that authority to operate at the end after you've written your software. And that sometimes that process took a year, year and a half, sometimes two years if you had to do a lot of iterations. And you're so waiting we waiting for your
0: authority to operate. Yes, waiting for the authority to operate. So you've got everything built, you're ready to go, and you've got to wait for security. Okay,
2: uh, And usually it's about a year. And if, you, and if there's a lot of errors, then also you have to iterate on the security design. And sometimes it'd be more than a year or two years to get authority to operate. Wow. So when we started Kessel Run, that was actually kind of the first thing we tackled was how do we accelerate the authority to operate process? How do we how do we meet all the standards in the risk management framework, the you know NIST 800-53? How do you meet all those standards but in, do it in code, do it with automated process, do it with checks? And so this is the idea of using commercial style CI/CD pipelines and let those CI/CD pipelines populate all of your security controls. And this was really at the time I won't say totally revolutionary, we, we, we did not come up with this idea, you know, U.S. Digital Services really kind of came up with this idea, uh, NGA was already trying to experiment with this, uh, Paul Puckett who's over at the Army now at the time is at NGA and we worked with him on kind of how do we do this, but I think we we're the first to really do it at scale and get that process going really quick and making it really repetitive. And a huge shout out also to the team at Hanscom Air Force Base. You know. Uh, the, the program office actually was the one who implemented this continuous ATO process and, and made it effective. Uh, but when it comes to security, what we found out over time is we put so much effort into securing the code. What we did not do is put as much effort as we should have into securing the actual cloud infrastructure in which we ran the CI-CD tools. And so it's one of the things where it's, you know, traditional military, we look at those production environments and say, you know, have we secured the app in production? Yep, we got that. And then we were really focusing on how do we make sure the application code itself is secure. And what we did to secure some of that underlying cloud architectures. And um, and part of it's like it's relatively new to the government. Like most of the military members we had building and operating these these clouds had very little experience with cloud architectures. They're used to on-prem data centers. (laughs) <laughs> and we thought we were okay. we contracted out a third party to do some pen testing. We had a few of our unsecurity people. And it, we thought we were good up until the point that we had an Air Force, uh, professional Air Force uh, pen testing team, red team come in and uh, they completely pwned us. They found so many mistakes. And really what it came down to, honestly, at the end of the day was lack of automation we didn't have immutable infrastructure because a lot of the work was not automated. You know, traditional military, we teach people to be system administrators. We teach them to go in, log into the Linux box and administer the box. What we don't teach is to automate all your tasks so that everything is repeatable every single time. And so what we had is, you know, config changes that we would not imagine you would have, but you did because people do things differently in different, different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd had too many permissions where we allowed developers to spin stuff up that wasn't automated on spin up, So it had some open ports, open protocols. And it, so it was a massive, massive wow. learning experience I for us. Can imagine. Very, it was embarrassing. It was uh, a bit demoralizing in many ways, but it's exactly what we needed, which is why pen testing is great. Everybody should do pen testing all the time. So.
1: Yeah. It's... I can imagine that's that's a huge learning curve, but also very eye opening. And I think um, with something like that, I mean, as you go through this process, are you, are you finding, too, that then you need to start building teams with different skill sets or talents or, you know, how how do you kind of evolve those kind of um, those capabilities in, in getting the team the, the right experience they need to help help evolve with this technology?
2: Well, I think there's, there's two aspects. There's uh, building the right team and then building the right partnerships outside the team. And I'll start with the partnerships outside the team first. Um, the first part is understanding why do you do pen testing? Why do yeah. you do red teaming? Because uh, again, traditional military mindset, it's a test. A pen test, it's a test. You go in there and you write up a report and people pass or fail. And I think that's the wrong mentality. Right. The idea of pen testing is pen testing should help you grow your team. It's not, it shouldn't be a competition between the red team and the blue team. Right. It, should, it should be a collaborative effort where your red team is finding things that your blue team can fix. And when this first pen test happened, we actually had a situation where some of the results get passed around and you have people, you know, all around the air force going, oh my gosh, look how horrible their security is. You know, this, this is showing why everything's wrong with cloud, which is not the right answer. The right answer should be hey, look, they chose to pen test themselves, they found all these things and they're fixing it. And so it is a mindset change with your external partners that not only is pen testing good, but you should do it even more often and you should be very transparent about all those mistakes you find because that's the only way you're gonna get better. Um, So so what does that mean for internally? Well, internally it means, first of all, you need your own red team. Uh, And it's not just your red team to do the continuous pen testing, it's your red team to coordinate with External red teams to make sure that when they're coming in, it's the right mindset, it's the right attitude. It's the idea that they're coming in to find problems so that the blue team can fix it.
0: We want you not, to help us. Right, it should be helping
2: exactly. Okay, and that was a and that was a that was a mindset change, and then also uh, and bottom line on, on our blue team, we did not have the people that had the experience with cloud security. Again, it's, it's very different than data than traditional yes. data center security. And yes. we had to hire in contractors. We had to send uh, our military members for training and. I think, honestly, at the, at the end of the day, the military is still behind on how many of their, you know, cyber workforce really mm-hmm. understands cloud, AWS, GCP, Azure, yeah. and how to secure it. We, we
0: uh-huh. run into that quite a bit, and it's, yeah. many times it's, it's either we're all in on the cloud and we don't think about security, or eh, it's too unknown, too, too risky, we're not going that direction, or, or some variant where, we, you know, we'll call the cloud a private cloud, a hybrid cloud. It does we We do talk to a lot of people though, with different perspectives.
2: Right. So Eric, you are broke up a little bit there, but I think what you're what you're talking about is like uh, the risk there not yeah, we like to talk about that the uh, I think there's a lot of people who view cloud as riskier than traditional on-prem mm-hmm. data centers. I actually right. disagree. I actually think there is more security if it's done right. Because what you do have is a shared security model. You have the big cloud vendors. You have the tools being put on top of it that are validated by the community. Plus, then you have your own team administering and running their portions of the cloud. I actually think the potential for higher security is there. But the key to it is you have to have people that know what they're doing. And you have to automate as much as possible so that you don't have that configuration drift in the development. And so the idea of that the military has a bit of it's too risky to go cloud, therefore we shouldn't. I actually think in the long term is hurting our security even more. We should be jumping all in and training our workforce on how to operate in this new environment.
0: Well, and I I love your perspective where it's, you know, we almost need a red team to work with the red team to set the right expectations because you're trying to learn, you're trying to get better. You're trying to automate at the same time. I I think that's a very forward leaning approach, really. like That's how everybody should be doing it, right? We want to go to the cloud because of the following reasons. Help us make it secure as we head that direction. Correct. Yep. So, how did you, you know, how, how did you get people to join you? Like, you know, the Air Force, the military does it this way. It's traditional. I, I imagine that would be easy for people who could get over the the, the military construct of this is the box you fit in and, and do your job. But there, there's some rebels in the military. I, I imagine you got some people who are like, yeah, I want to do it in a modern fa- fashion.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, let's see, how do we get people to join? So when I got my first team together, which was just six Airmen, so when I was still at the Defense Innovation Unit and I was putting together my first team saying, we're gonna build an app. It was really me calling up my friends, you know, other people, other squadron commanders that I knew and saying, does anybody have Airmen that know how to code? Because I had no idea what I was doing at the time, to be honest. I knew we wanted to code, I had some ideas about it, but I didn't know the talent I needed or, or how to do I this. So I just that. called up, Okay. I just called up people I knew and said, Right. Give me airmen. And I had, I think, 47 airmen from around the Air Force supply to come out to California for six months. And I just did an interview process, resume, resume screen, and I picked six people. And now, did I pick the right six people? For the technical standpoint, probably not. I probably should have had a different mix from a tech standpoint. But more importantly, I picked the right six people from the personality standpoint. And that, I think, is something that is huge, which is if you hire for personality, you can always train the skill. If you hire for skill, you may not get the right kind of people because what I needed were people that were willing to take what they knew about military culture and use that to inform their decisions, but they shouldn't be trapped by that. And so I basically had six people who were very much rebellious against the system, not in a bad way, kind of in the the good way of they've been in the Air Force for a while and they just wanted to do something different. And so for the first cadre, those first six people for the first six months, I think it was a fantastic mix. Uh, And as we started growing, we started attracting more and more of that type of mindset of people that wanted to kind of rebel against the system, do something different. Mm -hmm. But then we kind of hit a little bit of a a point where we got big enough that the rebellion mindset was actually a little bit detrimental to us, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we really needed was kind of the revolutionary mindset. So it's not about rebels breaking against the system – it's about revolutionaries inside the system, changing the it. hearts and mind.
0: Yeah, changing and the system almost, right? Exactly, correct. yes.
2: Correct, and that's, and so when we start off, obviously, defense innovation, you know, people like, they're like, well, why are you doing this? Who says you're allowed to do this? We'd give the kind of arrogant answer, oh, well, we work for the Secretary of Defense, you know? And you, that kind of only goes so far before people get really annoyed by you. Um, so as we transition this <laughs> <coughs> into the program office, that's where really kind of the revolutionary mindset said, came and said, now we're part of our program office. <clears throat> Let's change the hearts and minds of the program leadership, the, uh, the staffs, the security community. Let's bring the rest of the program office and the organization in on what we're doing, make them part of the team. And that's actually how we grew so fast. So when, we, when I started in 2016, it was myself and six Airmen. Uh, by the time I left command at the end of, or sorry, April of 2020, we had about 1,200 people. But that's because we we ended up absorbing other portions of the program office, where we decided, you know, this program is ripe for a new way of delivering capabilities. Let's kind of bring it into the Kessel Run fold. And so when Kessel Run started as kind of air operation, it started with Air Operations Center, but then the core of it really was. Uh, targeting and geolink. It was actually the, the targeting geoint program office. Actually, was the first one to really jump all in, uh, and then we added more of the AOC. Then we added some F thirty five work. Then we added some uh, unit level command control. And so over time, as we encourage and convince more people that it's the right way to do business, and success breeds success, the program started growing, and we got actually we got a lot of very traditional military members in, and what we and civilians when we said you know what we'll send you to training. We'll send you to a design school. We'll send you to a coding boot camp. And so you didn't need all these rebels anymore. It was let's take this is now just the way we do business. Let's train people up to do the job.
0: So you really changed the culture from those six person people in that initial startup phase to the way the Air Force actually develops.
2: Uh, Correct. I think that's probably the Yeah. Uh, well, not in some ways. I actually think that is it. The biggest success of Kessel Run is not the applications it built. The biggest success of Kessel Run is the culture that it built. And you see that in a lot of these other software factories around the Air Force, around the Department of Defense, comes out of people that were at Kessel Run, uh, whether it's you know Section 31, whether it's Space Camp slash Platform One, even Black Pearl, the Navy. A lot of the people who stood up those new efforts, and some of them are, are absolutely amazing what they've accomplished. A lot of them had either been, you know, full-time in Kessel Run or to come TDY to Kessel Run for a few months. Uh, and then they went back to their organization and said, you know what, this is a new way of doing business. So actually, I think the, Kessel Run's business success was the cultural change more than any specific technology or application.
0: So you really became the, the innovative development center for the United States Air Force in some ways. And, and training uh, school almost, right? Because you're spinning awesome. these people off to yeah. other places.
2: Uh, very much we became a training school, which, you know, part of it was, it was a little detrimental to us that people would come in for four or six months and then they go off somewhere else and we lose them we have to train up someone else. And, but we knew going into it that that model of getting some manpower early on, it wasn't so great for us, but it was good for the Air Force writ large, which in turn helped Kessel Run because it made it, you know, just that ends up being a, a program that actually works out. Um, yeah.
0: How, how did you, so as, as you're sending these people out, how did you change the Air Force? I mean, programs were accelerated, capabilities accelerated. I mean, did you do any measurements to understand the impact that Kessel Run had in the Air Force in that, what was that, I guess a four-year four, four year window?
2: um I know there are some measurements. Off the top of my head, I don't have any. Uh, A lot of the early measurements we did was more about software delivery timelines. Because you could look at traditional programs of record that were sending out an update maybe every few years. Really good programs in the government were sending out updates like once a year, maybe once every six months. And some of our software applications, we had updates rolling out live to the field, accredited every few weeks, every few days. In some cases, within a few hours. Um, and so we we definitely, if you look kind of like the DORA metrics uh, of you know, software delivery, I think we really had a lot of measurements on that. Um, there were some measurements on cost savings. Obviously, the tanker planning tool was probably right. the easiest one because there's actual real costs associated with fuel efficiencies. Um, other applications, it's harder to measure the cost uh, efficiencies, but we look at some of the, the user feedback on customer satisfaction. Honestly, in many cases, that should be the ultimate feedback is right. – is the customer happier? Is that planner? Is that intelligence officer? Are they happier using their your tool than their other tool? And a lot of that's measured by, are they using your tool rather than using PowerPoint and Excel?
0: Or the uh, whiteboard because those are the, the tanker example. Or whiteboard. Exactly. I like this better than the whiteboard because <laughs> exactly. Sally erased it by accident yesterday and we didn't know what to do after
1: that. Yep.
0: Rachel, what do, you think the, been- uh, what, what do you think the turnaround times on applications came from? I mean, we're talking a year plus on ATO. What do, what do you think they came down from if you were betting?
1: Ooh, uh, three months, six months.
0: I'm going under that. Oh, Really? Yeah, Prices is right rules. Enrique, okay. how, how'd you do that? You, you take these long ATOs from 12 months plus. What, what were you able to get them down to?
2: Um, we changed the methodology where, uh, I think our first ATO took, I believe, 21 days was the first one we did. Wow. Um, Boom, winner. That was the tanker planning tool. Once we went past that, uh, what ended up happening is we moved security from the end of the process to the beginning of the process. And that's what changed everything. If you know what you're coding against in terms of a standard for security and compliance, you should just have that as part of your software development process. Mm -hmm. It actually makes every engineer a security engineer, uh, which is not the traditional military model. Traditionally, it's you have your engineers write code, then it goes up to security team to check it for the next year. If you view security as being something that everybody's responsible for, you force people to code towards secure standards, then when the code rolls out of the pipeline, it's actually credited by default. That was the radical change, the idea of a continuous authority to operate, which is if you're using the right processes, the right tools, any code that you push to that pipeline is secure when it comes out. Uh, So now you have code that is coming out that is, honestly, after your assessors take a look at it, you could have something, brand new piece of code, once it's, you know, met an initial state, could be accredited within days with an assessor looking at it, and then every update is just automatically accredited. It doesn't go through another uh, ATO review process. Yeah,
0: we spoke to Derek Weeks in episode 98, I looked it up here, on DevSecOps practices. And and brilliant, Derek Weeks, he's... In the, in the commercial world, works for Sonatype, uh, but they talked about how they release code hourly in some cases. Mm-hmm. And it, it was the first time, I'm, I'm not a developer, but it was the first time I really got a foundational insight into DevSecOps and how quickly you can turn things and do it securely. And I really think this is a, this is some of the future of the security world, right? We've got to build it in from the it beginning. Is. We've got to be nimble and agile. It's got to be fast. And I, I think you really, I think you hit on something here. I mean, can you imagine waiting that's for the, key. a year?
2: It's it's the speed because if you look at if you look at a vulnerability that rolls out, you know, if if a vulnerability rolls out and you have to manually log into systems and patch those vulnerabilities, it could be sometimes months or years. And the military has had this where they've had vulnerabilities sitting in systems for months or years. It could take right. that long to patch and right. go through machine by machine. If you actually have an excellent DevSecOps environment and you have immutable. Code, and you have configuration code and infrastructure's code, then if there's a vulnerability, you could literally collapse a cluster, spin up a new one with the patch installed, and you can fix, uh, you can fix vulnerabilities within hours. And we've one has proven that on both infrastructure and on applications, being able to roll out new code in minutes or hours versus months or years. Well,
0: and think about how many applications never even make it to code because of that process and, and the time frame, yeah. the perceived time frame, they just stay on the whiteboard. Oh or in somebody's notebook, right? Oh,
1: yeah.
0: right? Yeah. And now you can just, Hey, we can do that for you. We'll spin it out. I don't have that much time and we'll get it out to you next week.
1: Yep. That's crazy. Well, with this, you know, I'm always so fascinated though, too here, Enrique, and you know, you, you have this, you know, dynamic industry, right? Dynamic te- technology constantly evolving, um, you know, and, and within the government space, you know, compliance is a big Big topic, And I I believe you've said kind of uh, the Air Force needed to move away from being compliance based, and I would love to hear your Mm -hmm. perspective here. Right.
2: So uh, I think compliance is great. And initially, you know, the the idea of compliance is that if everybody does security to a certain standard, then in theory, you're secure. The the problem is in execution is that when you write compliance policy, it's almost out of date the moments you write it, because there's always new changes in technology, there's always new vulnerabilities. And so you run into kind of two issues. Number one, if you have a new threat come out, the compliance is not equipped to take care of that new threat. Right. Uh, but the second thing is, if you have a new technology come out that is actually more secure than a previous technology, compliance in many cases limits bringing out a new technology because right. it hasn't gone through a multi-year evaluation yes. process. Right. And so the compliance models actually introduces insecurities to the system. Mm-hmm. And so a the DevSecOps model and the sec part of that where uh, best practices are encoded in both your underlying infrastructure. It's encoded in your your infrastructure development. It's encoded in your application development. As new technologies come out, as new risks come out, you know, I can just install new uh, configs in my scanning tools to mm-hmm. find stuff. Um, I can rewrite my infrastructure and deploy out whole new infrastructure. I can even transition infrastructure from one provider to another. There's so much I can do to mitigate risk right. if security allows me to operate in a matter of minutes or hours right. and so that kind of security model actually requires security officials who are much more technical right. and this is also a change that needs to occur in the DoD is we have a lot of security officials who they are very good at understanding the policy and understanding how to meet the st- intent or the, uh, the standards of the policy. Right. But they're not as technical as some of the security engineers that are out there. And when a security engineer brings them a new idea, trying to convince an accrediting official to change mindset is right. sometimes hard. It's not, not on, on a list, list right?
0: It's not on that checklist. On the they don't think about risk in Correct. that way. They look. They think about compliance mm-hmm. is what I've seen.
2: Right. Um, and I think, but it, it's not that they're bad people. They're yeah. good people that were trained in a certain way of doing business. Right. And there's a few of them. There are definitely some accrediting officials out there, especially in the Air Force, who are like... I say they're, they're risking their necks right now with the type of accreditations they're doing because they are trying to ensure that this methodology sticks and takes hold and they understand it's the right thing to do. But I don't think there's enough of them. There's a few that are just right. – they're just killing it right now. It's awesome. Well, the but policy says, that are willing to take risks.
0: Policy says do it this way. So by changing the way you do it, you're almost violating policy in some way, right, Arinke?
2: Uh, that is very correct. And I think in many yes. cases on the security side, we need to zero baseline that policy. And actually rewrite the policies to accept the fact that there's continuous evolution in technical architectures, there's continuous evolution in tooling, and there's a continuous evolution in methodology. And so, now, I'm not saying this is easy, this is hard, but how do you write a policy, which the government loves policies, how do you write a policy that takes into account variability? Right. Uh, But we need to find a way to do that, because static policies are actually hurting our security.
0: So so is is let me let me ask you your opinion here. I'm not a developer, once again, but you're almost building some level of compliance in up front in the way you're building the code, right?
2: Yes. Uh, very much so. So they and may not see that,
0: but but you're really building it in as you build it as opposed to the STIG checklist or the CCRI type checklist that they go through to make sure that, okay, did you update this? Do you have this configured this way? You're just building it in right up front. So every time you iterate, it's already in there and it gets correct. security by almost security at, at the build level. It's just assumed uh, it's in there, it's, so it's built the way in. We're,
2: Correct, so the way we're doing it is we're taking the compliance frameworks uh, like NIST 800-S53 and we're using a a software product I don't know if I can advertise products here, but anyway, we're using a software product that actually, when you enter the type of technologies you're using, it actually builds out tickets for your backlog, your actual software development backlog in Jira or Pivotal uh, Tracker stuff, so that your developers know from day one what they have to complete off the backlog to meet the standards. And then as your code goes through that CI CD pipeline, uh, that Jenkins build that links into uh, you know, these Sonocubes, your Fortifies, your other scanning tools. Those scans then inform the software whether you met the standard yes. or not. And so, yes, it is building in compliance up front. But the great thing about it being compliance based off of code versus compliance being based off of PDF documents is that if we need to change something, like if there's a new and that comes out, we can actually go into that compliance software and say, "This is the new standard," and right. immediately yeah. every new piece of software, if they don't every meet that standard, build. they're going to f- they're going to fail their build. So it forces everybody to immediately meet the new standards in order to get their next build out. It's a much more dynamic way of doing security that allows you to keep up with, with the threats. What do,
0: you, what do you think about sending a bunch of agile developers, more modern developers, into the accreditation teams to help them understand what you're doing and get that comfort level and change policy? Um, I don't know that they would want to do it.
2: Um, I think the way we do it is we have the accrediting teams sit with the developers and actually see how they do the work. And actually, this is what we did at Castle Run. We brought in the accrediting officials and we sat them down. They saw how we did the code. And the great thing, again, about doing your compliance in the code itself is you can print reports. So we can print whatever reports they want to see about what code is compliant with what standards. And and it's there. It's something they can look at that they're comfortable with. And as they get more comfortable with those reports – they get more comfortable with the process. Because at the end of the day, rather than doing security based off of reports, the reports should merely be an output of a secure development process. Right. And honestly, I think I think NIST, as NIST is moving forward with this uh, compliance as code with their OSCAL standard, I think as as uh, companies start building towards that compliance as code standard, it'll be more natural for accrediting officials to accept uh, this type of variable uh, adaptive compliance.
0: Well, I think this would drive. We're, we're talking government here, but commercial mm-hmm. world, same problems, right? We've got supply chain issues we're talking oh. about lately with Sunburst and everything mm-hmm. else. But you could drive the same type of behaviors into more secure code on the on the product vendor side.
2: Uh, I think that is going to be a huge part of the industry moving forward. Yeah. Uh, because I think that the Department of Defense really is, as we stood up Castle Raw it's Platform One, all these other organizations are moving towards DevSecOps, a lot of us looked towards the commercial sector for best practices and right. for security, for the tooling and the processes. And the government is starting to adopt it and really going all in adopting it. But what's interesting is then, as you look back at the commercial sector, kind of with this new lens on, what you realize right. is even though these tools come from the commercial sector, there's actually not there's a lot of commercial companies that don't follow them. So even though some commercial companies do and kind of set the standard, the majority of these companies, especially ones that are supplying to the federal government, aren't meeting these types of development standards and these methodology and these processes. And I think we, in many ways, I think it's incumbent on the federal government uh, to help these companies, especially ones that are doing government work, to help them with secure software development, uh, help them with securing their company, help them with securing their products Because if not, it's just government money going to these companies, and it's being siphoned out the back door by the Chinese Communist Party, or by the Russians, or by the Iranians, even before the product ever gets in the hand of the federal government. And so, the government, I think, needs to help these processes that we've learned. We am not in the federal government anymore, but with my federal government hat on, these processes we've learned in the federal government, we need to help push it back out to industry for these small and medium-sized businesses that are that are supplying the federal government.
0: Which is interesting because I'm, I'm trying to think back to CMMC, which is one of the biggest modern initiatives, I don't think there's anything in there that I'm, I'm trying to think back through it around DevSecOps, secure development, anything on the development side, right? It's it's really more of a compliance-driven, are you doing cybersecurity? Are you doing this? What are your policies? Right. You know, how are you structured? I, maybe that's an, an angle for the CMMC teams.
2: Um. I think it would be great. There is, there is a little bit of within CMMC that covers the, the software development portion, but I think the part that CMMC is really missing is the continuous monitoring. So as we mm-hmm. went down this kind of, in the Air Force's continuous ATO and rapid ATO, one of the things we looked at is you have to be able to do red teaming and you have to be able to do continuous monitoring, which traditional ATO processes don't have that. Traditional ATOs you scan your software once, it's good, and maybe two years later you scan it again. We kind of went down this road, so if you had to do continuous monitoring, to have this kind of authority to operate. CMMC is kind of the same boat. You fill out the paperwork, you get a third party crediting official to look and say, yep, you're good to go. But what you don't have is that continuous monitoring of the company, of the company's infrastructure. Right. You don't have a continuous red teaming of that company's networks right. to see if they, first of all, if they really are meeting the standards. And as things change. Are they going to continue to meet those standards? And I think that's where CMMC needs to go to be true active security rather than a merely compliance based.
0: Yeah, I mean, baby steps. I I, I would agree with you, and I don't think they're. But again, if you're if you're let's say you're like like Forcepoint, you're building a software product. I don't think CMMC really looks at how you're writing code, how you're protecting it i guess protecting it you know securing the networks and the endpoints and everything but but really not getting into how you're developing code and ensuring you're encrypting passwords and simple things like that from a developer's perspective
2: yeah there's uh there are a few things in there that look at that but you're right it's not as much it's more about how you secure your company yeah which obviously you know you look at uh you look at the solarwinds hack and the the exploit against that environment that was not an exploit of the tool in production that was a supply chain attack on exposed services as part of their software development uh, process and that is that is a real issue and in theory if people implement cmmc to the absolute perfect extent maybe some of that's mitigated but at the end of the day no one ever knows because it's a paperwork drill it's not correct. There's no real active scanning, continuously look to see if somebody misconfigures something, see if some there's some configuration drift. And that's that's where I think where we're really hurting as a federal government is our ability to help these companies that honestly can't afford right. to implement really expensive right. security. How do you help them implement security if we're trying to use their products?
0: Yeah, you've got to build it in. It almost needs to be a way of life, Rachel.
1: Exactly. Yeah, so, Rachel, I'm going to turn much. it
0: to you. We're running to the end of the uh, end of we our time are. together. Any any last comments, thoughts, well, questions? Well, you know, I mean,
1: it's a lot of big challenges have been raised. And, you know, I, I love that you keep coming back to red team continuous monitoring. I mean, how are we going to get ahead, you know, when we look at supply chain in general, right? I mean, that's... That's a really big, hard problem that we need to solve, particularly for the government supply chain. And like you said, when you have these smaller organizations, they just don't have the money, you know, to to build in all these extravagant you know, security systems that really make them more secure. So but with your experience in innovation and invention in the next five years, I mean, what do you see happening here for us to start you know, getting a handle on this?
2: Uh, well, I think there's a couple things. So first of all, I will plug my own company <laughs> second front. Uh, we, we are actually looking to uh, roll out a product that will help with some of this more active security and uh, monitoring and software development for these small and medium-sized businesses that are trying to work with the federal government because we think right. they need help. You know, the federal government needs to be secure, but for them to be secure, these companies that are providing products exactly. need to be secure in how they develop. And so we are actually trying to target that specific niche market of saying, we can help them do software development better. We can help with their active security so that the federal government is getting good quality software. But that in and of itself is not enough. The supply chain is too vast yes. and too complex. And I think I think what needs to be done first is being able to map that supply mm-hmm. chain. There is very little understanding of the real supply chain for technologies inside the federal right. government, especially as you start talking about the hardware side. Not even talking about this, you know, we go beyond software, you start talking about embedded processors, wow. you know, where are the parts coming from, who's designing those parts. We have very, very little inside in the supply chain. And so I think over the, over the next five years, the federal government needs to invest in this rising group of commercial technologies that are trying to understand and automate supply chain analytics. Um, the federal government needs to invest right. in that. And not just as a customer, but as an actual R&D investor to make sure those technologies are detailed enough to understand right. the risk, especially when you talk about nation-state yes. risk from Russia yes. and China. That's It's a
1: it's a big task, but it's one that absolutely needs to to try to move forward. Um, but yeah. it's exciting to think of, you know, as, as, particularly with the work that you're doing and, you know, kind of as, as you start training, you know, new folks bringing diverse thought into this industry, it's exciting to think of what, what's coming next. You know, who's going to have this, this really ingenious idea, maybe, you know, that kind of revolutionizes things and simplifies it so it, it's a much easier path forward versus right now it seems like a very huge rock we're trying to push uphill um, to, to get there. But that's why I love cyber. <laughs> it's so exciting. I, I love cyber too. And so I'll, <laughs>
2: I'll make one last comment on that. It's, uh, it's actually not about who comes up with this na- next big idea. It's who can adopt yes. it. And that's really – so it's less about innovation and more about entrepreneurship, which is as a new idea comes out, who's going to right. get it first? Is China – is the Chinese Communist Party going to implement it first or is the U.S. government going to implement it first? Are we – is U.S. government even going to understand the potential impact of this new technology yes. to even think about implementation? And so that's where – that's actually where I'm really excited yeah. about You're having a whole new crop of people in the federal government. Who are yes. really thinking about technology adoption, and that's what we exactly. really need.
1: Yeah, exactly, because that's always the the tough part. If you've been in technology a long time, you know you're either too early or too late, and and really the whole thing is to be able to commercialize it and get it out yeah. and uh, and adopted. So, um, I'm really excited yeah. for the path forward. Thank you so much, Enrique, for the conversation oh, today. It's been awesome. And Eric, I'm not sure if we lost Eric, um, but uh, thanks everyone for joining us for this week's episode of To The Point. Be sure to subscribe so you can get a new fresh episode every week to your inbox. And until next time, take care.
0: Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.